Well, this morning we continue in our study of Genesis, and um, in my notes it says we, we continue in our study of the genealogy found in Genesis 5, but I wrote that a number of days ago, and since I'm going to uh, change my direction a little bit because I've talked with a couple of you and I've been asking you, okay, are you getting this? And uh, some of us are getting it great because we're already, we're coming to it with you know, a, a certain level of understanding already. You already have a certain background. But some of us, this is all really new. <laughs> it's kind of like, whoa, what are we doing here? And I thought, you know what? What we're going to do this morning is we're, we're still going to study the genealogy for sure. It's going to take us a little while to get to it. But what I want to do is I want to do something a little bit different. What I've been doing so far is I've been developing a theme and then going back and showing how that theme is coming out of Genesis 3.15. What I want to do this morning is start with Genesis 3.15. I want to develop it again really quickly, uh, just for the benefit of some who weren't around for the first message. And then from there, just do a review. And as we go along, this isn't just going to be a bare review. I have a few new insights that I want to share that I don't think I've shared in the course of our talk as we go along. And we'll work our way uh, to uh, Genesis 5. And what I want us to see is I want us to see that here we have this gospel announcement in Genesis 3.15. And in this gospel announcement, we have a number of themes. And I want us to begin to see how these themes are beginning to fan out in the Scripture. Uh, this exercise is a little painful at the start, but as you do it, and the more you do it, it will increase your ability and capacity to, to enjoy the Word of God, because you're going to start seeing these themes all over the place. These themes originate in Genesis 3.15, and they go all the way to the, to the final chapter of Revelation. You will see these things everywhere once you begin to identify them. So let's go back to Genesis 3.15. Turn back there with me. In fact, turn back to Genesis 3 with me. And we'll, we'll go ahead and develop Genesis 3.15 kind of quickly. Um, you know, the Lord is speaking uh, to Satan in Genesis 3.15. And in verse 1, Satan comes into the garden. And he comes into the garden with the express purpose of twisting God's Word all up. Uh, notice what he says in verse 1. He says, he says to Eve, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Uh, you know, uh, see how twisted that is. There's an element of, like, it's like not so removed from the Bible that you don't recognize it, but it's, it's all twisted up. That's why we do this work, by the way. We do this hard work so that you'll know the Bible well enough that you'll know when this is happening. You'll know when it's twisted. If we didn't spend this time in the Bible like we do, you would be just like Eve. You'd be, you, you'd be a sitting duck for this kind of thing. But we, we read that and we say, you know, something's wrong with that. That's being twisted. And Satan not only comes into the garden to twist the truth, he comes into the garden to deny the promises of God. Hold on to that theme, by the way. He comes in and denies the promises of God. Uh, the Lord had said to Adam back in Genesis 2 and verses 16 and 17, He says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. You know, it's like, look at the garden. Look at all the trees. You can eat all of those trees. There's just this one tree. You know, this one tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. There's a promise there. What's the promise? You eat of the tree, you're going to die. That's the promise. 
Well, Satan comes into the garden denying the promise. Look at verse 4. What's he say? Genesis 3, verse 4. You're not going to die. You're not going to die. Denying the promise, isn't he? Denying the promise. Satan comes into the garden twisting the truth. He comes into the garden denying the promise. He comes into the garden attacking the character of God. Satan suggests that God's holding back on Adam and Eve. Look at verse 5. God knows. He says, verse 4, you're not going to die. God knows, verse 5, that when you eat of, the, when you eat of this tree, your eyes are going to be opened. You're going to be enlightened. You'll know. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan comes into the garden twisting the truth, denying the promises of God, attacking the character of God, and he successfully tempts, deceives Eve, tempts Adam and Eve. They rebel against God, and they fall from their state of innocence. And then the Lord comes into the garden, doesn't He? Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, He speaks first with Adam. There's a lesson there for us, especially fellas. You've got families. Um, he speaks first with Adam. Uh, where are you, Adam? Adam says, I heard the sound of you coming in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. The Lord said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I command you not to eat? Adam confesses, but his confession is part of confession and part of justification, isn't it? It's not a real good confession. It's not one to, not one to copy. Don't copy this. Uh, it's not good. Um, he says in verse 12, the woman you gave me. This is your fault, Lord. You, the woman you gave to be with me. She gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Now, the Lord in His mercy speaks to Eve in verse 13. But then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And then in verse 14, the Lord simply curses Satan, doesn't He? Just curses him. And then in verse 15, we come to the gospel utterance, the very first gospel proclamation. He says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, what do we have here? We have Satan and the woman, right? We have Satan's offspring and the woman's offspring. And we have hostility between them. Right? Those three threads we have going on here. Now, when we turn the page to chapter 4, if you turn to chapter 4 and you look at verse 1, Adam and Eve bear their first son, don't they? Cain. In verse 2, they bear a second son, Abel. And before verse 2 is complete, Cain and Abel are full-grown men. There's an there's a, there's a advancement in, in time of uh, probably at least two decades, I would think. Uh, at the minimum, uh, the lifespans being so long in this in this uh, in this time period, it's it's difficult for us to say how much time went by. We know a good deal of time went by. Uh, Cain and Abel are now full grown. One is a keeper of sheep, the other a tiller of the ground. And in verses three through five, the men offer worship to the Lord. And remember our discussions in, of worship when we were there. Abel, in verse 4, he offers the firstborn of his flock. Do you see that? Uh, Abel is offering the very best. That's what that phrase means. He's offering the very best of his flock to God. And Hebrews in the New Testament tells us that Abel offered his offering. It was a better offering because he offered it in what? He offered it in faith, didn't he? He offered it in faith. So Abel believed God 
And that was accredited to him as righteousness, wasn't it? Uh, he believed God, and it was accredited to him as righteousness. Uh, now, speaking in terms of Genesis 3.15, very clearly we see Abel is among the offspring of the woman. Everybody okay with that? I saw a couple eyes go. Speaking in terms of Genesis 3.15, we have two different offsprings here. Offspring can be singular or plural, can it? You know, it's a good thing to keep in mind too. But we very clearly see Abel's of the offspring of the woman. Revelation interprets that for us. Revelation makes it clear that the offspring of the woman are those who believe in God, hold to His promises. Abel's very clearly walking in faith with the Lord. He is among the offspring of the woman. But Cain, uh, Cain is just going through the motions. With Cain, the Lord's not a pleased. Cain does not approach God in faith. He's just going through the motions. And in other words, Cain does not believe that it's in his best interest to follow the Lord. That's, he's there, he's showing up, but it's not where his heart is. You know, he's showing up to offer these sacrifices, but he doesn't believe that his greatest happiness can be found in the Lord. Cain does not believe that the Lord is more precious than gold and silver. He doesn't believe that the ways of the Lord are in his best interest to follow. Yeah, Cain wants to go his own way, you know? He wants to go his own way. He wants to have it my way. That's what Cain wants. He wants Cain would rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints because the sinners are much more fun. That's where Cain is. Very clearly, Cain is of the offspring of Satan, isn't he? Very clearly. Now, as the chapter progresses, we see that Cain's not a happy man, is he? He's not a happy. He's not a happy guy. I mean, the road that he is following, it promises a lot of happiness, doesn't it? Doesn't deliver, though. Now, the path he's on promises so much happiness. It promises contentment. It promises freedom. But Cain is miserable as miserable gets. He's full of rage and jealousy, isn't he? He's just jealous of his brother. He's enslaved with this jealousy. He can't get free from it. He rises up and he kills Abel and the promise of Genesis 3.15 unfolds. We have Satan and the woman. We have Satan's offspring and the woman's offspring. And we have hostility between them, don't we? Cain rises up, kills Abel. There's the hostility between the two offspring. The offspring of the serpent rises and kills the offspring of the woman. Now, let's pause right there and let's take a look at what's going on behind the scenes here. What's going on behind the scenes? Behind the scene, there's an evil that's even more sinister than Cain. Much more sinister than Cain. Behind Cain's murder of Abel is Satan himself. You can be rest assured of that. Behind Cain's rising and slaughtering his brother is Satan himself. And what is Satan trying to do? Well, he's trying to save his life. He's trying to save his life. You remember Genesis 3.15, what's it say? The, the offspring of the woman will bruise the head of the offspring of the serpent. The NIV, I love the NIV uh, inter, uh, the translation of this. It said that the offspring of the woman will crush his head. Um, it, he will have his heel struck in the process. That is, the Savior will have his heel struck in the process. But I'll give you a choice of... of two different types of injuries. You can have your heel struck or you can have your head crushed. Which one would you rather have? Um, 
Uh, if anybody has any questions about that, I'm sure Alex would be happy to field those for you after the service. And he's going to tell you that don't get your head crushed. Um, Satan is trying to save his life. That's what he's doing. He's trying to save his life. I think this is an interesting thing here because back in Genesis 3, Satan is denying the promises of God. You know, he's... You know, the promise of God is if you eat from this tree, you'll die. And, and, and Satan says, you're not going to die. As if he doesn't believe it's true. He does believe it's true. It's important that we see this. Because everywhere we go, we have all these voices that are telling us, don't trust the Bible. It's not reliable. Don't trust the Bible. Don't, don't, don't trust the gospel. It's not true. If you follow those voices back to their source, you'll follow these lies back to the liar. And the liar that's in, behind all of these, he does believe they're true. He does believe this is true. He is just vainly attempting to thwart the Lord and destroy His promises. And we can see Satan's plan of attack has not changed at all. I mean, look at the assaults upon the church that takes place today. I mean, it, we, we could make some application here. I already have. I mean, in, in Genesis 4, where we are right now, it looks like Satan is winning. Abel's, where's the offspring of the woman? Abel's dead. It looks like Satan is winning. I mean, but he's not winning. It sometimes appears to us that Satan is winning, but he's a defeated foe. And and let me go one more step. Satan is always attempting to still doubt and still doubt in our heads. And I mean, but his constant attacks, what's that all about? If there's nothing to it in any of this, why is he constantly attacking it? It's because the one who's trying to instill the doubt in our heads believes this stuff. In fact, he knows it's true. He knows that God is a God who fulfills his promises. And he's trembling. And behind the lie is a trembling liar. That's what's behind the lie. Remember that. When that voice whispers in your ear, behind that voice is a trembling liar. You can go back to the chapter 4 and see that. Now back to Cain. Cain, he's showing no remorse. He's banished from the presence of God. He's cursed to be a fugitive and wonder. There's a bit of humor in this. Cain is sent off east of the, you know, he's driven away from the presence of the Lord. He goes off east of the Garden of Eden to a, a land that's called Nod. Now, why is there humor in that? Well, some of you in your margins will have a note that says that Nod means wandering. How'd you like to be a wanderer? and have your nose rubbed in the fact that you live in a land of wandering. There's a bit of humor there, isn't there? I remember years and years ago reading the Bible and laughing, and damn me, like, what are you laughing about? Oh my God has a sense of humor. I mean, you see it everywhere. He's really got a sense of humor. I think this is one place that's ironic that um, Cain has to live in a land that's called wandering. In verse 16, Cain bears a son. His name's Enoch, and Cain builds a city. What's up with the city? I don't think I spoke to that. Um, I don't think in, when we were there that I, I spoke to that at all. Why is Cain building a city? Because he's a very anxious man. Uh, the path that, that Cain is taking is a really anxious path. It's a really 
um, it, 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 it's, it's littered with anxiety. Um, you go down that path, you're going to be a very anxious person. Uh, he is in constant fear for his life. He speaks of that in verse 14. Cain says to the Lord, whoever finds me will kill me. You know, he's a very anxious guy. Um, the Lord promises to protect him, but what good is that going to do Cain? He doesn't believe God's promises. If you're an unbeliever, you, you don't believe the promises. That's, so they don't give you any comfort. You know, it, God's promises offer him no comfort or security. And um, Cain undoubtedly builds a city for his own protection. That's the point of the city. It wouldn't have been a city like New York City. It would be like one of those ancient cities, but it would have been fortified to some degree against those who might attack it. So he's building it for his own protection. And here we see the denial of God's promises. Remember I asked you to hold on to that? That denial of God's promises. Satan comes in denying the promises of God, yet he believes them to be true. He wants to instill doubt in our heads. But in his head, he knows that they're true. Every one of them. Uh, here we see Cain. He doesn't believe. And this brings us to a genealogy of sorts in chapter 4. I don't think I've called it that. But if you look at verses 17 to 22, you'll see there's a genealogy of the line of Cain here. Uh, verse 17, Cain knew his wife. She conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the, of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mehael, and Mehuyael, get that one out real fast, Mehuyael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, the name of the other Zillah, and bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. Now, if the story ends in verse 22 here, it would seem that Satan has succeeded. He had murdered the offspring of the woman. Satan has, has raised offspring for himself. He has his own uh, kingdom here. Uh, and undoubtedly, his most prized member of that kingdom is Lamech. Uh, look at Lamech's boasts in verses 23 and 24. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And here is arrogant self-sufficiency, isn't it? If you want to show anybody arrogant self-sufficiency, take them to Genesis 4, verse 22, verses 23 and 24. There it is. Uh, Lamech has no need for God. No need for God. He has no need for God's protection. He's going to protect himself. And he has no need for God's judgment. He will be the judge. Uh, we see all of that in verses 20 through, through 24. Lamech is the he's the proud father of great men. Jabal. You know, he's renowned for being a, 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 a great herdsman. And Jubal, he's renowned for his musicianship. You know, he's known for musicianship. And we have Tubal Cain. He's renowned for craftsmanship. So here are great men. No mistaking. These are great men who are great at these things. I think that's how we're to understand this. These are great men, great achievers, great achievement. You can almost hear the enlightenment motto that man is the measure of all things in this, you know. Great achievers, great achievement. But what about Genesis 3.15? What about the promise of a Savior? 
Where's the offspring of the woman? Where's the Savior? And how is God's plan going to unfold with a lack of offspring? Before we answer that, I think we can almost hear Satan's taunts. I think we can almost hear him say, look, (laughs) this has been a long time since God promised Genesis 3.15, and there's been no Savior. Let's keep in mind, a lot of time has gone by already. We read Genesis 3 and 4 and we think, you know, this is all happening on a Sunday afternoon. A lot of time has gone by here. There's no offspring. Look, I think I can hear Satan say there's no Savior. Look, the Lord should have made good on this by now. He's not going to. No, come reason with me. Look at Cain. He's, he was cursed, you know. But he didn't die. He went and built a city. And he had children. Great children. Great children. They're prospering. Look at Lamech. He's a great man. Look at his sons. They're a great one. Talk about great businessmen. Great businessmen. They have vision. They have creative. They're creative. They're artistic. Forget about that old promise. It's antiquated. Forget about that. It's not up with the times. The times have changed. You can hear that, can't you? Doesn't sound all that different than today, does it? Same, same, isn't it? Where's the offspring of the woman? Verse 25. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Here we see God is moving, isn't He? He's moving. He's unfolding His great plan of salvation. Look at verse 26. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Where's the offspring? Here's the offspring. Here's the offspring. What does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? We developed this last week. We summarized it with two words. Anybody remember what the two words are? Worship and dependence. Worship and dependence. From the Psalms, we developed that idea of calling upon the Lord. Worship and dependence. And this brings us to chapter 5, where we discover a second genealogy. And this genealogy is quite different from the first. And what are we to do with this genealogy? What are we to make of this genealogy? Well, if you remember last week, I pointed out a pattern. And as we were reading it, probably many of you saw that pattern again. If you look at Genesis 5, verses 3 to 5, you see that when Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, then he died. Now, you'll find this pattern as you continue to read down through the genealogy. The pattern goes like this. Person A lives so many years. Then he has a son. Then he lives so many years after he has the son. He has other sons and daughters. Then he dies. Then the aforementioned son lives so many years before he has a son. He lives so many years after he has a son. He has other sons and daughters. Then he dies. Then he dies. Then he dies. Then he dies. And we see that pattern. He lives, has children, he dies. He lives, he has children, he dies. He lives, he has children, he dies. And then we get to verse 22. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Okay, so far so good. Verse 23. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Okay. So good. Verse 24, Enoch walked with God and he died. 
Ha-ah. If you're reading that quickly, you might insert died in there because you're expecting it, aren't you? But it's not there, is it? It doesn't say that, does it? This is the jolt that we're supposed to get as we read this that's cueing us into the heart of it. What are we to do with this? What's right here? Enoch walked with God and he died. No, he didn't die. What do you mean he didn't die? Everyone else dies. Enoch didn't die. God intruded. Again, Hebrews gives us commentary on this. He escaped death. He didn't die. That's what Hebrews teaches. He didn't die. God took him. God took him. What are we to make of that? Well, this interruption is leading us to the heart of the chapter. And last week, my effort was to show that the Lord is sovereign over death. He's making it very clear. He's sovereign over death. What are the people of Seth to think? Hey, we're the people of Seth. You know, we're dying. We live, we die. We live, we die. We live, we die. Imagine the grace and the strength and the comfort that you would have got from this verse saying, well, when you saw that Enoch, he didn't die. You'd be reminded of something you already knew. We need to be reminded of the things we know. We know God's sovereign over death. But here, God does something that He, he only does this twice. Taking somebody like this. He interrupts the pattern of death, showing Himself sovereign over death. And that was last week's message. Now this week I want to take Genesis 5 a little bit further. And I want to start by saying that we have real history unfolding here. This is real history that's unfolding here. This is not mythology. This is real history unfolding here. This is a genealogical record of real people. We have that in Genesis 4 as well. I mean, Cain, Enoch, Ired, Mehujael, Mehushael, Lamech, Ada, Zillah, Jabal, Jubal, Tubal, Cain, Ada, Zillah, Naamah. These are all real historical people. They lived, they walked the earth. They chose a path. It led to a real destination. They chose a path that said God is not needed. They chose a path that said we are sufficient, that we can achieve these things ourselves. They chose a path that, that chose to look at our own achievements and our own greatness instead of looking and attributing any greatness and achievements we might have to Almighty God. That was the path that they chose. And in Genesis 5, we have a genealogical record of real people. You know, Seth, Enish, Kenan, Mahalalel, you know, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah. These are real historical people. And they chose a path that leads to a real destination. They chose a path that said God is worthy of not only our worship, but our dependence. Not only of our worship, but of our dependence. They chose a path that said God can be trusted, and God should be trusted. And to not trust God is the greatest of all sins. They chose a path that said God's promises will surely come to pass. That's the path they chose. And here's another comparison that I have not mentioned yet. You know, in the line of Cain... Who is seventh from Adam? If we go in the line of Cain, I don't expect anybody to know. You've got to sit and count it out to know this. And, you know. But the, the one who is seventh from Adam in the line of Cain is Lamech. And, you know, Lamech, he's, he's the one who's, you know, 
arrogant, self-sufficient. You know, I've said plenty about that. We got that back in chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. But in the line of Seth, who is seventh from Adam? It's Enoch. And Enoch walked with God. And he was not. He walked with God, and God took him. And he spends his days in fellowship with God. He has been ever since. And today, he has no less days to sing his praise than in the hour when he first began. Where's Lamech? Where's Lamech? We know where Enoch is, but where's Lamech? Has anybody seen Lamech? Where are you, Lamech? Are you still protecting yourself? Where are your achievements, Lamech? Lamech! Where are you? Does anybody hear anything? Where's Cain? Where's Enoch? Where's Ira? Where's Mehujel? Mehushael? Where's Ada? Where's Zilla? Where are the boys, the great men of renown? Jabal, Jubal, Tubal Cain. Where's Naamah? Where are they? They perished. These are real people. This is real sad. It's really tragic because they're, they're, they're suffering an eternal suffering and they have no less days. Come, let us reason together. The genealogy of Genesis 5 powerfully teaches us that it is no waste to follow the Lord. It is no waste to follow. That's, you see, that's the grand picture here, I think. It's no waste to follow the Lord. Satan and his taunts, where's the Savior? Should have been here by now. Where's the Savior? Does the Savior come? Yeah. Where's the promised Savior? He came just like the Lord said He would. It's no waste to follow Him. You know, as I was thinking about how to conclude this message, and I was thinking about where's the Savior, I kept thinking of the prologue of John's Gospel. You know, this is a good time for the prologue of John's Gospel. You know, in the beginning was the Word. Where's the Savior? Oh, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made, and without Him not one thing was made that has been made. And in Him is life. And the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. And verse 12 and 13 of that great chapter tells us, To all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. 
who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of the man, but of God. Where is our Savior? He came, lived that perfect life, took that perfect life to Calvary in our place, secured a salvation for us that is ours for the taking by faith, went to the tomb, third day rose from the grave, and now is seated in the heavenly places, dispatching every blessing in the heavenly places to every single person who trusts Him. Amen. Amen. It is no waste to follow Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the words that You give us. We find the Gospel in Genesis 5 just like we find the Gospel in John chapter 1. And Father, we thank You and praise You, Lord, that uh, You are a God who is faithful to Your promises, that it is never a waste to follow You. Father, we pray that, Lord, you would press these truths upon our hearts, Father. Some of us are sitting here and there's too many details to grab. Father, press those details upon them that, Father, you would see uh, for them to understand at this point. Others who know this stuff so well see maybe some new things, but Father, I pray for all of us that, Lord, we'd have a greater appreciation for these early chapters of Genesis to see that they involved real history, real people, making real choices, choosing real paths. And Father, for some and for many, it was a waste to follow the Lord, but we see in Genesis 5 that it is no waste to follow You. Father, we thank You and praise You for these great truths. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.